I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. As I told you many times before, when I travel the world, I find it quite funny when people ask me about the Middle East. You know, it's like, uh, uh, did you guys have swimming pools or do the camels have a speed limit on them? Or how do you coexist with the terrorists? And it's quite interesting for me because I have to admit the Middle East is probably one of the biggest jewels of the world and one of its best kept secrets in many ways. And so now that I've been in Dubai for a couple of months, I thought, wow, okay, I can bring a bit of the Middle East to you by sharing with you some of the remarkable stories of this part of the world. And I started this series, The Remarkable Women of the Middle East, with one thing in mind, to remind everyone that remarkable is not about where you are in life, what you've achieved or the impact you've had, but rather how far you've come and the challenges that you had to overcome on the way. And my guest today is a perfect example of Remarkable. She is Middle Eastern through and through, Persian in origin, born and raised in Dubai. She earned an undergrad in economics from California Berkeley University, then had her JD from Villanova Law, and then passed her bar exam in New York in 2007. But then came back to the Middle East to be one of the most successful entrepreneurs in fitness uh, in this part of the world, in, uh, in a way uh, helping people through movement uh, to find a better path through life, if you want. She is an avid coffee fan like I am. She is a mother of three, and I know you will not believe it when you see her on camera. And she, in every possible way, is someone that has gone through challenges in business, with COVID and the lockdowns, in dealing with the franchise that she had to start with, in so many ways in her business, that makes her a lot more resilient in terms of her ability to overcome challenges than the wonderful smile that she gives to the world. I'm with Maryam Fatahi Salam, who also shares with me in common, I think, a much deeper connection around those that we love. I know already that this is going to be a remarkable, memorable conversation, and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I do uh, with Maryam Fatahi Salam. Uh, Maryam, thank you so much. I, first of all, uh, I think you are the first person since I started recording this podcast that uh, actually showed up on the dot, on the minute. On the uh, minute. On the minute, not, not a few seconds early. And not a few seconds <laughs> late. I've never actually, probably, I, I mean, I never show up on time myself. I actually went to the wrong building. Did you? Yeah, I went to, I was dropped off at 4A and I walked through. So even with that, I gave myself that cushion. Glad okay. I did. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that because you're very, very organized, very meticulous or is I it? Am. You are? And I say that with a little apprehension. Yeah, I'm extremely meticulous and endure. Mm -hmm. And I've always been that way. 
Okay. From childhood. Uh, did, you teach, did you teach courses? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could show up at two o'clock, not two and a half minutes. Like, who does On that? On the dot. Yeah. Did you actually look at your watch before you... No. No, that's... <laughs> that's even worse. That's, I know. That's so instinctive. I I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very... Inst- uh, you know, I just have such a strong... I don't know. I'm very instinctual. I have a very... My gut... My gut speaks so loud, and I, I, I don't know, I just go. You went to, to my kids' school. So my kids, we're not going to say the name of that school, because when my daughter Aya left that school at age nine, she called it a concentration camp. And uh, I, would, I would have to agree. Yeah, it is, it is one of those places where you get a top quality education, mm-hmm. but it robs the children of their right to actually live. Like it was extremely demanding in every possible way. Yeah. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about that. I thrived in the school. Um, my sisters, they, they ended up going to Dubai College, which today is one of the most difficult schools to get into. But at the time, it was sort of easier to do Dubai College than, than the school um, we were in and I stayed through. Yeah, it does rob you of your childhood, of creativity, of just thinking, just thinking. I remember going to law school and um, I had to do moot court, which is, you know, like a fake court. Um, and I froze. I completely, because we didn't, we didn't know, we didn't <laughs> know how to, to. No, we're not thing. allowed to. Um, and I, I thought, wow, my entire life, I've just regurgitated information that was given because that's what you did at our school, right? You, um, mm-hmm. You had to memorize. And if you were, which I have a photographic memory, sadly, because it is a double-edged sword, uh, I I did so well. I did so well because I memorized. But then in law school, you have a set of facts and you've got to analyze them. Make sense um, of them, yeah. And then get up and speak, which we did not do in our school. It was just sit yeah. down and keep quiet, put your, keep your head uh, down. Uh, yeah. It was. I, th- I think the funny bit about that school is that I remember vividly that when I walked in. You were scared. Yeah, to pick my, my kids. My parents I, too. Yeah, I, I, I felt really scared because there were signs everywhere that were saying things to parents. And to children, like, don't walk on the grass was for everyone. It was just rules. Yeah, it was rules, 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 rules. and Obedience and rules. And yeah, there was just no, there was no life. There was no joy in learning. There was no joy in learning. Well, that's it. Um, so so how, does, how does one go from this to being, I mean, you almost set up the boutique uh, fitness uh, business in Dubai. I mean, my my wonderful ex Nibel, I think, started a couple of years after you, or maybe even, around the same time, yeah, possibly. But, but it was it was. I remember vividly when Nibel and I were working on on her uh, fitness center. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. Yeah. There were the big box gyms, yeah. and then some homegrown yoga studios that were great, but the boutique fitness experience wasn't here, mm-hmm. and. Um, when I brought out the the franchise to the brand uh, 10 years ago, I mean, it changed the way women, and it was ladies only, so it changed the way women view fitness. It became like a therapy, yeah. uh, you know? Th- that's quite interesting because I remember that vividly as well at the time mm-hmm. where the idea of of ladies only 
to start with, honestly, was sort of like a cultural, religious thing. It's like, you know, maybe there is a comfortable place for a woman who's wearing hijab to go to go and, and work out comfortably without being looked at by men. Exactly. But then, uh, but then the clientele started to be from all over the world. You, you would get very international, very liberal, you know, women that walk in in their many skirts, but they still preferred to be in a... Uh, they still prefer to be in a ladies-only gym. Yeah, why is that? I think it's just um, there's that sense of comfort and unity. It's funny, when we were in class going through the burn and the sizzle of our muscles, we were, we just had this, um, we just had this common ground. We shared the same, like, women at the end of the day wanted a place to feel safe, to yeah. feel good about themselves physically, but above all, just emotionally. Um, and in our classes, we were really um, pushing them beyond what they thought, you know, past that point of where they thought they would have to stop. So they would actually push through um, the burn uh, and the discomfort. And that experience was just, it really changed so many lives. You didn't answer me about the lack of creativity becoming an entrepreneur. So mm. how was so, that journey? So my father is an entrepreneur and my late sister is also an entrepreneur. The journey, I would say I was, I've grown up. Especially you're a lawyer, huh? And I'm a lawyer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I would say I've always had the, I've lived around it, right? So I've lived around my father who was at one point the king of garlic in the world. In uh, the world? In the world. Out of Dubai? Out of Dubai, yes. And this is pre-China. Uh, pre-China, yes. <laughs> Post-China. <laughs> the whole world is different. Yeah. yeah, he had to. And, you know, I saw that spirit in him. He's um, He works to this very day. He works seven days a week, my dad. Um, is a workaholic, much to the dismay of my mom. But he, you know, he transitioned and he went over to office furniture. He founded Bafco many, many years ago. Ah, yeah. Yes. Bafco is actually quite big. If you've lived in Dubai long enough, you would have act had to deal with Bafco somehow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then my late sister was also an entrepreneur. Uh, she founded the grooming industry here when she set up the first nail bar in the Middle East, and then went on to actually by default launch 1847, which is a grooming lounge for men. And I say by default because uh, the husband of all of her clients at Enbar got jealous and they said, well, if our wives have somewhere to go, where do we go for our nails and, and shaves? <laughs> like she was building a playground for she the was. husbands. In fact, in fact, so we used to work, um, we used to work shifts. So Nagin had 9 a.m. to 3 and I had three to nine at the front desk in her first location at Palm Strip and Bar. And aside from the fact that we would turn away women by saying, you know, we had a wait list and we would have to turn ladies away. And they would say, you know, no, I'll, I'll come back. I'll come back later tonight. And we'd say, okay, you're number 14 on the wait list. So women would go and actually uh, put their kids to sleep, do their groceries, cook dinner, and then come back for their appointments. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely something that I believe is very much un, un, you know, misunderstood about the region. Mm -hmm. so, so there were so many passionate, successful entrepreneurs. Young. 
young that built this place. It wasn't built on money. It was built no. on a lot of vision by those people. No, exactly. Nagin actually got a uh, bank loan um, to start Enbar. Mm. And um, yeah, the husbands ended up uh, coming on Fridays. I think we, at one point we secretly allowed men. Uh, <laughs> and then 1847 was born, and then she went on to uh, launch another concept, all her concepts, uh, Jet Set, which was sort of um, a wash and blow dry concept. And um, and yeah, so I went to law school, came back to Dubai. I saw a void in the in the fitness market. We had the big box gyms and the homegrown yoga and Pilates concepts, but we did not have a boutique fitness uh, experience. And I sought to change that. Yeah. And you did very well, actually. But it wasn't easy, was it? It wasn't easy, no. I mean, it was challenging to bring a brand that had no international studio and was very happy being a homegrown concept in New York. So that took a little bit of time and coaxing, a little bit of time being close to two years. But I finally convinced them and they came out and setting up is not easy. Yeah. I also did that solo with no partners. And educating women initially was not easy as well to move their bodies and stick with a program. But yeah, then when, when they did, so we had two camps. We had the women who were, you know, lined up on day one. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we had others who uh, hadn't done any sort of physical activity since PE in middle school. But then that quickly changed and we we became a success very quickly. And at the time we had two studios in City Walk, one location with two rooms. We had classes running simultaneously with wait lists. And that also changed very quickly in Dubai. So the industry picked up and yeah, we saw, I mean, we didn't have competition for a very long time, I'm thinking now. We were at the top of our game for, I'd say, six, seven years. And then shortly thereafter, COVID hit. Yeah, I want to say that we really were top of our game for a long time. I think you still are. I think COVID's cost has been quite significant for everyone. But right. without getting to COVID, because I, I think COVID coincided with lots of other tests in your life, mm -hmm. I think maybe we should introduce our listeners to Negin. So you mentioned her many times, your yes. older sister, mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur, a mother figure to me, a mother of four herself. How much older than you? Six years six older. Years. Yeah. So I have two older sisters, Negin, who's six years older, and then Yasmin, who's five years older. I was very much the baby growing up. I was the baby, but I also was the headstrong, independent sister. Yeah, uh, Negin was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer at the age of 31 when she was at the height of her career and, I mean, both professionally and personally. And she was pregnant with her fourth a child at the time. And uh, I was 24, a newlywed, had just passed the New York bar exam. I had just started working. Uh, I was in-house at a financial firm, and I was pregnant with my son, Ali. I was about four, four and a half months pregnant with him. And so we were pregnant, due months apart with boys. Her youngest was to be a boy, 
Amir and Ali. And in Dubai, in her pregnancy, she had a lot of pain, a lot of pain in her body, and it just felt different. And her doctor here said, you're just having another very big baby. You're too in tune with your body. You're tiny. And you're having another really big baby. So go wear your back brace. Send your driver to Life Pharmacy and let him pick up a back brace for you. And so a couple of weeks went by and she said, I, I can't do this pain. I mean, at that point, she couldn't even carry her 10-month-old daughter, Noor, her third child. And so she said, you know, Mom, I'm going to go to L.A. Uh, early uh, because she would always have her babies there. And you can follow with the older kids. I'll take Noor, my third. And my mom said, no, no, I'm going to come with you. And she got to LA and that's when her OBGYN, when she went for a checkup, he just palpated and felt something suspicious. And my other sister at the time called, I was at work and she said, I'm so worried. I don't have a good feeling. I'm downstairs circling, waiting for Negin because there was no parking rush hour in Los Angeles and she couldn't find parking. And I said, you were just panicking, like calm down. There is, you're thinking of the worst and she's just, you know, it's a checkup. It's a routine checkup. And she said, no, no, the pain that she has is not normal and she's taking too long. And so when my sister did come back down to the car, Negin, Yasi informed me that there was something suspicious and that she had to go get an ultrasound with someone else. And then again, I was at work waiting and immediately the doctor who did the ultrasound sat nagging down and she was alone. Again, my sister was in the car driving, waiting for her. And he just said, you know, you have, um, you have cancer. This is cancer. We need to, we need to do a, a biopsy. So they did a biopsy and, um, it was cancer, it was um, malignant, and then they had to get the baby out to see how widespread this cancer was. And Negin went on steroids for Amir's lungs to develop for a week, and then went into the operating room, and when she was in there and they opened her up, uh, they saw the spots uh, on her liver, and it was stage four. So the doctors came out, there's a team of them, and they told us to to make arrangements that she had three to six months to live. And how did it feel? I mean, it's a very strange feeling to mourn someone who's alive and to know their time is limited. It's like It's like running a marathon, but you don't know where the finish line is. No idea. Uh, I know and, that for sure. Yeah. I, I always talk about Omar, my son's friend, mm -hmm. who uh, had a colon cancer around the same time that Ali left our world. And I, I have to say, it was just unbearable to watch him suffer. Uh, the, the problem is you actually, like you rightly said, you don't know where the finish line is. So, so they... They said three to six months. Mm -hmm. And she fought very gracefully and beautifully for 13 years. 13 years. Mm -hmm. 13 years. Is that because they were wrong in the three to six months or is it because 
she did something different or she was different she was wow. different yeah what does that mean Negin's name in Farsi means diamond and we all know how flawless diamonds are made right she a few things to say one is i remember within a week of her diagnosis she once looked at me and she said maria maybe this is my purpose in life and i said what do you mean it and i'm 24 pregnant myself i said what do you mean purpose in life and she goes maybe it's my purpose to inspire people with my story maybe that's my purpose so we were saying why did she mm how did she i really don't know i actually don't know how she did it she was just brilliant I I just no words. I don't know if that helps anyone. I don't <laughs> I'm sorry if it doesn't help. I I wish I knew. I mean, did she look at it differently? Did she She I think she just she accepted it from the moment of diagnosis. She and she would say later many times, I've been dealt these cards and I'm going to play the heck out of them. and on her instagram profile to this day her bio is full seven times stand up eight so i think that says quite a bit i don't know how some of us are able to do this it seems to me that we're told that fighters go further in life mm-hmm. when reality is that those who go like okay bad move life mm-hmm. but i'm going to do something about it right they go much further don't they Yeah, they really do. Did she have a good life in the 13 years? She had an amazing life. She she lived she really lived every moment and every second of her 13 years. Yeah, she was just so grateful for it. She was just so grateful to like between her diagnosis and her passing. She was so grateful for every moment that she was given did she know she was going to stay longer than 6 months did she ever talk about that no she didn't and she really did protect us her family uh she never wanted to upset you know my parents her children her sisters her husband she just did it with a smile that could light up the world. Yeah, she I mean she's definitely my biggest teacher. In what way? In showing me how in the midst of heartache and adversity and loss whether that's when she was alive or even after she was um no longer earthside how There's so much beauty still in life and life can be so rich and so abundant. Yet very very unfair. And I think that she acknowledged that life was unfair. She probably saw it. She never told me or told us. But she must have seen it as I have two options. Either I accept 
and I'm at peace with with the moment and circumstances as they are, or I resist and I suffer. Um, so she was my biggest teacher in that learning too. Uh, so many learnings, but I would say that we always have options. We always have options, and suffering is a choice. Suffering is a choice because circumstances are circumstances, but it's our perception of the circumstances that determines how we live. Yeah, I, I think the diagnosis is not a choice. Right. But what you do about it is a choice. Entirely up to you. It's entirely up to you. Exactly. So when, when that was happening, mm -hmm. you were in New York. Mm -hmm. You had to come back to Dubai? I, when that was happening, I went, she was actually treated in Los Angeles. So I went to her in Los Angeles with my newborn. And I spent a good year back and forth, most of my time in Los Angeles with her and the family. So her four children were there. Um, she did a year of intensive chemo and radiation. And then she came back to Dubai. And she was a patient for life. So a lot of people would see Nagin as a vision of health because she was, you would never have thought if you saw her out on the streets or in a restaurant um, that she was a, a cancer patient, which she was for 13 years. So she came back to Dubai. Her four kids were here, school, and she was running her business, the grooming company. She you know, rolled with the punches. She really, she just kept moving. She just kept moving. And she taught me that, that you just, you have to put one foot in front of the other every day and appreciate every moment. But that not moving is not an option. I think that's what she taught me is we have that choice. We have the choice to sit and just create our own suffering or, or move and find joy and beauty in life. And she did that. How do you find joy when, when you're in pain, when you're struggling with how many more days do I have? What will happen to my children? By the way, that I really don't know the answer to. And that killed me. That killed me, not, not hearing from her how she was scared of the future. To this day, that, that is something that is so heavy. Was she scared? I could see the fear in her eyes towards the end. I could see it. Also, I didn't mention earlier that her last five years, four and a half years, um, she was diagnosed with leptomeningeal cancer, which was a whole new cancer on top of her stage four breast cancer. And because of the lepto, Nagin very, very gradually lost her mobility over five years, nearly five years, her speech, her vision, and her cognitive skills. So again, initially she was aware of that, and then when it got to a point where she was no longer aware, of course that was um, easier on the family, the fact that she wasn't aware. But she would ask me when she first started seeing a little bit blurry and double vision. She once asked me, 
are my eyes, do you see them as crossed? Because I'm not seeing, you know, I'm not seeing very clearly and I'm worried. And I said, no, you must be tired. I mean, you know, if you're seeing double. So I, I believe that the answer to my stubborn question of how, interestingly, is not found in a form of doing. It, it just doesn't seem to me from our conversations before we started filming that uh, she was the kind of person that would just do things. I think there was an essence to how she is. And being, interestingly, is much more effective sometimes at achieving things than actually doing anything. It's, it's the way you are that makes you beat life, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah, she was um, open to it. She was, yeah, it sounds, it sounds crazy, but she was open to it. She was, she surrendered to the not knowing. I think that's the hardest bit. Yeah. I think it's much harder, you know, when we compare mm -hmm. our stories, I think the not knowing. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember vividly when Ali was, so, you know, we were smiling and laughing and, you know, it was just an appendix inflammation. It wasn't a big deal. We, we, you know, we thought Ali will be in the operating room for 10 minutes and then come out and that's it, right? And then the doctor came out an hour and a bit later by, of course, Nibel, my wonderful ex, has always been very intuitive. So when he was walking in, she was not comfortable, you know, and every minute that passed, she was, you know, more and more saying something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Uh, and then when the doctor came out, we had those hours of Ali in the intensive care room. He had bled too much. He had a very rare blood type. And he literally, his organs were shutting down one after the mm -hmm. next. And there is that moment where you're, you have no idea what's going to happen. You know, you, first of all, it's the first time I have ever been in that situation. Nobody's talking to us because of legal liabilities and they can't have say this and they can't do that. And, and you know, those four hours, six hours, I would say were the hardest six hours of my life. There was a point when I looked, finally there was an intensive care doctor that was human enough to sit me down and say, it doesn't look good this shut down, that shut down, this shut down, that shut down. And, and if he comes back to life, he's not going to be himself anymore. And, you know, in my heart at that time, and I know it sounds horrible, but my, my prayer shifted. My prayer became, you know, if he doesn't come back as him, if he's coming back to suffer, we here in this part of the world, we don't fear death as much as the, as the rest of, you know, maybe the Western world. I started to think, no, if, if this is the case, then I'd rather him continue his journey rather than mm -hmm. come back to suffer. I don't want to see my child suffer this way. And I think you went through a bit of that yourself, but on an extended 13 yeah. year. Again, absolutely. The same, same thing, but on a very different timeline. Yeah, she, um, we, we had her, which is a blessing for 13 years. 13 more years. And we had her... I'd say period. 44. Yes, yes. I mean, for my 37 years, I had her to love and I had her love. So 
what a blessing that is. Do I view it as the worst thing that happened to me or the best thing that happened to me? And I've said it before, you know, if I, if I had to go through this journey again to have that time with her, even under those circumstances, I would. And she was my teacher. We were talking about how what she taught me. She, she, she taught me that, aside from the fact that life is so fragile and so excruciatingly painful with its adversities and life events, and that it's so, it's so incredible. She also taught me that we are so powerful in and of ourselves. I was somewhere recently and there was a circle and they asked, uh, what is one thing you can't live without? And they went around the room. And it, when it was my turn to speak, I, I stopped and I said, I, I think it's my own strength. <laughs> and the whole room went quiet. Um, like one thing I can't live without. And I, I never knew I had that in me. Um, you know, I, I, I was forced to tap into a power that just unleashed um, something I didn't know I had. And then to keep going back to it. So once you know that you can do that and you have it in you, you turn to it when you need it. I mean, it's not common that you need it to the to the extent that you needed it. Yeah, and I and I needed it. I mean, there were times when I would come home, going back to COVID. On March 15th, 2020, Dubai went into lockdown and I closed both studios. We had two uh, locations, the fitness studios, and we closed both. I closed both. And then I went home to my sister's and I took my sister to, to therapy, speech therapy, and it was my first time taking her, I was always working at around 3 p.m. And it ha so happened that I was there. I relieved my mom of having to take her. And in her session, I just noticed that her, the color in her lips were, was changing. And I mentioned it to the therapist. I said, I think that, I don't think that she looks well. And Negin was nonverbal at the time. She... She was in a wheelchair. She was in a wheelchair for almost two years. So she was, uh, she was nonverbal and I noticed that her, the color in her lips was just turning blue. And she ended up losing oxygen on the same day that I closed my businesses. So it was like, I don't know. It was, the timing was crazy. The timing was crazy. But having to deal with no business for four months, and then on the same day, my sister goes on oxygen and ends up staying on it and then moving to life support for the next 11 months. I remember I would visit her in the ICU, and this was COVID, so we were decked going in. And I'd come out of the room and tell my husband in the waiting room, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I, I actually don't know how I can do tomorrow. I don't know how I can do life without my sister. I just don't know anything. And 
life shows you. I mean, when <laughs> I, I was going to ask, how 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 come? I mean, what what happens from that moment? I mean, you look fine. You're wonderful. You walked in with a beautiful gift. You're smiling. We had a wonderful coffee. I mean, and uh, you know, I think most people should understand that it's very difficult to remember the ones that you love. Mm-hmm. So when when I speak about Ali, it's still today, eight years later, it's just very, very painful. Very, it's very painful. But then, and then you want to you want to talk about them too. You want to honor them, and share the the joy, the light that they were. Yeah, but then, but then as well. I mean, as you walked in and we were chatting and getting mm-hmm. to know each other, you're very successful. You're very bubbly, I may say, you're enjoying life. Mm-hmm. And that paradox is quite interesting, isn't it? It, it really is. Um, in my case, I think seeing my sister suffer to, to live, like I said, at the end of her journey, she couldn't breathe independently. But even throughout her 13 years, she could breathe, but she really did savor life. And she would constantly remind me when the going got tough, whether it was at work or life. She would remind me that, Mariam, things can always be worse. Things can always be worse. And I'll never forget those words. Like, they're just ingrained. They're a part of me. You know, that this moment, like this moment right now is is so precious. This breath, this ability to just be is is so is so um it's such a gift life is such a gift i know it's it's a cliche but when i say life is a gift i mean we are its beneficiary we're not life's victims despite the pain despite the pain probably because of the pain you see the 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 beauty of wisdom is that you feel it before you understand it, before you're able to describe it. Right. It's so interesting because I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days, the idea of not despite the loss of Ali, but because of the loss of Ali. There is an incredible joy in, as I always say, in looking at as the game of life, Mm -hmm. as the game of life, it comes with challenges. And, and overcoming those challenges is, is fun, if you ask me. But I think the more interesting side of it is that whole idea of realizing, realizing that a moment in life where you had your sister is so precious. But now you have your other sister, and mm-hmm. now you have your kids, exactly. and now you have your husband, and now you have your, you know, your success or business or clients and you have every meal that we eat and you have every encounter if you want and i think in a way cannot forget that these are also to be savored and enjoyed because because each and every one of them will only be felt like ah i missed it exactly if it's gone so maybe you should savor it before it's gone and i think that idea of life can always get worse is quite an eye-opener when you think about it because it is worse for so many other people 
but we look at at ourselves and we say, hey, you know, this is horrible. Exactly. This is beyond my capability to deal with. But in reality, you're still here. You're I'm dealing still with here. It. I'm still here. I'm still living it. I'm. So what is living? What do you think is joyful? What do you do deliberately? You know, just like wholehearted presence, wholehearted presence and being grateful for... Grateful is the word that is not supposed to fit in here. I know. And yet it's the only word that fits in there. It's the only word. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to, to be alive. Well, Mariam, I have to admit to you something, and please don't blame me. So my intention was that we were going to meet. We were going to talk about Nagin for a while. Then I was going to talk to you about being an entrepreneur in the Middle East and being a woman in the Middle East and being Persian and, you know, what, what's happening to all of the wonderful women in, in Iran. I actually think I won't. I think I will leave us at this. I think, I think of all the now 230-some episodes I had on slow-mo where we cognitively spoke about something mm -hmm. that taught my, my, my listeners something. I will ask every one of my listeners today to not think, but to feel, because I, I think what you feel, mm -hmm. I think this is the first time on slow-mo that, that truly all that we communicated is a sense of being, is a, is a way of living, is a, is a feeling that wholehearted presence, just being with it, savoring it, embracing, sitting with it, loving it. Loving it, Maria. Just loving it. Yes, yes. Loving, loving it. it. Loving it. How can I not love it when I had the gift that I had? Wisdom is felt before it's understood. Absolutely. And before it is said in words, how can I love it? How can I not love it? How if, can I not love it? If I had the gift I had, I feel the exact same way. I mean, how really, how blessed were we? How blessed were we? We could have, we came with nothing. I came with nothing. I could have not had my sister in my life, but I had her. I had all of her for 37 years. So I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I will leave you all to think about that. I think, uh, I think the truth of the matter is that we, we forget the gift itself, the gift of life itself. Mm -hmm. We forget the gift that we have them before we leave them. We forget that it's all part of the, it's all part of the game of life. It's all part of what life is about the hardship, the pain, the test, the experience, the love, the breakup, the separation. It's all part of why we're here. And I think to be able to find gratitude mm -hmm. for what you've been given, not feel victimized for what has been taken away, it's probably the deepest secret to living a life that is not only successful and amazing, but also uh, not without pain, but with 
with calm and peacefulness and gratitude. You know, I was thinking moving when you were asking how moving forward, both literally, physically, because I can, because I can. I saw my sister bound to a wheelchair for almost two years. I saw her struggle to speak, and then I saw her lose her speech. I saw her struggle to see, and then I saw her lose her sight. So, I mean, how can I not move forward physically? And then figuratively, I find that it's just, it's like this natural byproduct of being grateful for life. When you are, when you are grateful for life, you're inevitably going to move forward. And to share that with people, you know, I, I now know something I didn't 10 years ago, that my purpose really is to have made it through the darkest days of my life. Days when I, like I said, I would come home or come out of the ICU and ask my husband. I'd say, Talal, how am I going to do this? How am I going to live tomorrow? How am I going to live life without my sister in it? I can't imagine a life without her in it. And I've gone through those days. And I can say that the darkest days have brought me to where I am today, which is this state of just absolute gratitude for life, for everything I've been through, everything. And, and I want to share that with people and give them hope when they're going through a dark period, a tough season, that it's not, it's not a setback. Maybe it's, maybe it's setting them up for something that, that they're meant to do or they're meant to be. Do you consider yourself happy or just keeping up, coping? No, I consider myself happy. I consider myself happy. Because what is happiness? I'm asking the expert, what's happiness? I'm not going to say anything. I have no idea. I think happiness is just the absence of searching for happiness. <laughs> yeah, it's the absence of the... I mean, I say happiness is the absence of unhappiness. And the biggest reason for unhappiness is craving what you don't. Right. Your quest, this like never-ending quest. I've got to be here to be happy. I've got to have this to be happy. Happiness is here. It's like right here, right now. It's all we have. I understand you, but I'll ask you to elaborate. Happiness is being at peace with the moment as it is. So if you're if you're looking to change this very moment and try to control circumstances and change outcomes, well, you're not going to be very happy with life. Just not. Because you can't. We have no control. We have no control. I saw that at the time of my sister's diagnosis. I mean, we were brought to our knees. And talk about being forced to surrender. You know, sometimes people have 
Like they think they have an option, but I saw it. We had no option. We had no control over life. Zero. Zero. Nobody ever does. Nobody ever does, but they think they do. And when you are down and you have nothing more to ask for but just peace, really, just peace for, for everyone, when you're down and you realize you have no control, what is control? Now I'm going around in circles, but I'm thinking, I, I saw that I couldn't control the situation very early on when she was diagnosed. So either I was going to, so I was forced to accept it. That's the thing. I was forced to accept it. Sorry, I was going around in circles, but I'm trying to, my mind is going um, a little haywire. So I was forced to surrender. So I learned that the only, like that was my only option. Yeah, they say in the Islamic uh, teachings, actually, that the, you, you can get one of two tests in life. One is the test of hardship mm -hmm. that gives you no options. And the other is the test of ease, mm -hmm. where you're, where you have to, where you have choices, but none of them really works because life is supposed to have a bit of harshness in it. And you know, we we always say that the test of harshness is easier because you're like, oh, okay, I fell. You know, it's exactly it, it, it's so much easier than. I might not fall if I do this. And, right. you know, why am I going to fall? Why is exactly. life Exactly, when you're given fall? options. Yeah. Yeah, we had no options. I was given no options. So it was either... But you have op you have options now. Yeah. You, you, can, you can be a victim. You, you can, yes, that is You can, uh, you know, curse life. True. You can be bitter. Why are you not taking those options? What good would those options serve? I mean, and it's not even how I feel. It's truly not how I feel. I feel so so lucky for my journey, which included my sister and taught me so much about life and about myself. I tapped into this power that I, I had no idea I had. Superpower. Superpower. Vulnerability, I say, is my superpower. You know, just sharing your story, living authentically, living, just living, living just living. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I am with you. I think we've given everyone enough. I think so. I think everyone's like, wow, that's, there's a lot more. There's so <laughs> much on. more. There's always more. <laughs> Go on then. No, there's just so much, there's just so much to share. There's so much to share in life. Yeah, it's, it's so simple. It's like, life is perfect the way it is. It really is. And I have to say another thing that adversity, pain, grief taught me was my grief awoke me to life. And my grief started when my sister was diagnosed. So it was 13 years of anticipatory grieving, grieving someone who is still with you, who's still alive, who for a good chunk of her 13 years was Loving life, loving life. I mean, she was loving life until she, you know, the last few years when she was less capable. So grief woke me up to life. Grief gave me a fresh set of eyes, really.
And for that, I'm, I'm blessed. Imagine living life without the knowledge and wisdom that I have today. I feel there is in the pain of grief, anticipatory grief, mm -hmm, as you called mm -hmm. it. It's a bit like appreciating a nice breathy afternoon mm -hmm. because you've been to Montreal. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like yeah. if, you, if you've been in the deep minus 39, mm -hmm. very, very, very cold, you suddenly look at a nice breathy summer evening and say, wow, that's incredible. Much more than if your whole life was going through that summer, right? If your whole life was through that summer, it just becomes background. You don't see it anymore. Yeah, you appreciate it. So I want to close with one thing, one mm -hmm. word that you would leave our listeners with. Wow. Hmm. We always have a choice. We always have a choice to, to look at life, events, circumstances, in a way that will build us or break us. Yeah. Interesting. So it's not what happens that builds us or breaks us. Mm -mm. It's what we do with it. Don't say another word. I actually want to end up here. I, uh, I've had, I think by now, 230, 235 guests on slow-mo. I think this is the one conversation that was not from the head as much as it was from the heart. This was just a heart conversation. So if you wanted to listen to Mariam's conversation with me, analytically from your cognitive analysis of the lessons she taught us, you may not get it. I would ask you to go back and listen from the heart. It reminds me a lot of the conversation I had with John Butler because if you've not heard this, John only spoke from the heart. He only spoke few words, far and in between, separated by silence. And, and I think I learned in that conversation, just like I did with Mariam today, that there is a lot more to life than doing, that there is a way of being that we can look at life with. And that's all we need to find a place where we're happy, where we are satisfied, where we are contented, and where we are alive. I think the idea of, I'm so blessed after all that pain, I'm so grateful, is something that I would urge you to go back and look at, especially at the times where we are now complaining about economic issues and work issues and relationship issues and we forget how much worse life can go and how even at the deepest deepest of the darkness of life there is joy to be found and there is a lesson to be learned i am so grateful that i met you mariam i really likewise am. thank you for having me on your show that is a beautiful and powerful reminder of what we can do together. 100%. I believe that this was actually meant to be. 
And it's coming, by the way, at a very interesting time because I myself am working through some of the challenges, if you want, uh, thinking about how it is that we're going to handle a world that's similar to the world we're coming across now. So I am so grateful. I am so appreciative of every feeling that you've so vulnerably shared. I thank you all for joining me because every time that you join, I learn something new. Uh, every time that you join, I get to meet a remarkable human being. And it's because you listen to Slow Mo that we're able to invite those incredible people over so that we all learn and feel inspired. I think this was a conversation that was slow enough for you to do it again. Yeah, slow is good because uh, it's those segments of silence that I think are really, really the flavor of what life is all about. Share this with others if you found your heart connected to it. And uh, yeah, find a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.